I'd ask you to make your way to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm going to be making reference this morning also to chapter 8, but our primary focus will be in chapter 9 in a message entitled, A Heart for the Glory of God. In 2019, we have been celebrating 60 years of the life and the ministry of Cross Lanes Baptist Church. Our theme for the year has been renewed as we focused on Lamentations chapter 3 and verse 22 to 24, that the mercies of God are without end. His faithfulness is great to us, and we find our hope and our trust in Him. And as we've gone through this series, especially since August, we've been focused specifically on renewed generosity and what it means to be good stewards of our lives. We've thought about faith, community, mission, service, consistency, diligence, compassion, evangelism, and today we conclude with a heart for the glory of God. We do have a specific financial goal that we're working toward. God has permitted us and blessed us to do so much here on this hill in recent years, and we want to finish what we started. We can't do that without your faithfulness. There have been many people that have been dug in along the way that have continued to build. And as we stand on the shoulders of the people that have gone before us, even in the decades preceding us, we recognize that God has given us a sacred trust in his church to do his work in the way that he wants it done and to honor him with all that we have. And as we seek to reach our financial goals, that will simply empower us to have more resources for ministry and for missions. We have a mission component in the current campaign over the next three years, as we have the last couple of times that we've done this, just saying that this is not about us and this is not about our comfort. This is not about the upbuilding of our kingdom, but it's about the advancement of God's kingdom. So today I want to turn our attention to the subject of stewardship in Second Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. Just a little bit of background about what's going on here. The Apostle Paul had written to the church at Corinth already, and they had been engaged in giving. There was a circumstance in Judea, and particularly in Jerusalem, where the early church was in a time of persecution and difficulty. They didn't have much. They were being pressed on every side, and Paul was receiving funds and resources from the outer lying churches to be able to bless the people who were there. And as a result of that, evidently, the Corinthians had already given but something happened along the way where maybe they shrunk back just a little bit from their responsibility. And Paul's writing to them again in 2 Corinthians, and he's using an example from the churches in Macedonia, which was in the northern part of what we would call Greece. And the churches of Macedonia were in familiar cities like Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. The Macedonians themselves were in a time of deep affliction. They were in a time of great poverty, and yet they gave generously. And they served as an example to the church at Corinth. And Paul was writing to the church at Corinth and saying to them, look at these other brothers and sisters and how they've been faithful. We want your example to be the same as the gospel goes forth. And I have confidence and courage in you that that, in fact, is going to be the case. But he lays some foundational principles about what giving and stewardship should look like. And he tells us that the Macedonians gave, first of all, of themselves to the Lord. That's ultimately what it's about, that we would yield ourselves to the Lord and surrender to him. 
the real issue is not the money. The real issue is the giving of ourselves. And then they gave according to their ability. So their stewardship was not because they had a lot and they had a super abundance that they were able to give out of. They were people who didn't have much at all, but they gave proportionally to what God had entrusted to them. They also gave willingly and freely, not out of compulsion. It wasn't because anybody was twisting their arm. It was simply because they understood the grace of God and they wanted to give in response to that to the point that they implored for the ability to give. They're asking, they're wanting to be involved. Nobody's even having to remind them. They're pressing in. They're leaning in with urgency about the ability to give the gift. And one Bible commentator said the example of the Macedonians is practical proof that true generosity is not the prerogative of those who enjoy an adequacy of means. The most genuine liberality is frequently displayed by those who have the least to give. Christian giving, therefore, is estimated in terms not of quantity, but of sacrifice. Paul points in chapter 8, and then he wraps up again in chapter 9, we'll see in, here in a little while, to Jesus as the ultimate example. So he's pointing to us, uh, the fact, pointing out to us the fact that God is the greatest giver of all. The greatest gift that has ever been given is the Lord Jesus Christ. And in response to the greatest gift that's ever been given by the greatest giver who could possibly give, we are to be a people who give, first of ourselves and then of what God has entrusted to us. I begin reading in 2 Corinthians 9 in verse 1. This is a short chapter, so we'll read it all for context. And here's what the Word of God says. Now concerning the ministry to the saints... It is unnecessary for me to write to you, for I know your eagerness, and I boast about you to the Macedonians. Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you in this matter would not prove empty, and so that you would be ready just as I said. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, would be put to shame in that situation." Therefore, I considered it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you and arrange in advance the generous gift you promised so that it would be ready as a gift and not as an extortion. Now, verse 6, the point is this. The person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make every grace overflow to you, so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work, as it is written. He distributed freely, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Verse 10, now the one who provides seed for the sower and bread for the food will also provide and multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for all generosity, which produces thanksgiving to God through us. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the proof provided by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedient confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone. And as they pray on your behalf, 
They will have deep affection for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. When God's grace is poured out on us, the only right response is grace. The only right response is to give as we have been given to. I want to make this statement that's going to provide kind of the guide as we move forward here. This is my main idea today. Giving is a matter of grace, and it is for the glory of God from the start to finish. Giving is a matter of grace and is for the glory of God from start to finish. Now, the word grace is in several verses in chapter 8. In chapter 8 and verse 1, he speaks of the grace. Chapter 8 and verse 4, the word that is used of the privilege of giving is actually the word grace in the original language. Verse 6 speaks of the act of grace. And then verse 7 says, so that you will excel in this grace of giving. And then finally in verse 9, for you know the grace. In the Old Testament, giving is a prominent theme. And the people are reminded that what they have has been given to them by God, and they're to be faithful with what he's entrusted to them. We see the idea of the tithe before the law was ever instituted. And then when the law came into being, there were several aspects of giving that the people were to partake in. There was the Lord's tithe, or what was referred to as the Levite's tithe, which went to support the ministry and the tabernacle and the temple. In Leviticus chapter 27 outlines that. There was a tithe called the festival tithe that we find in Deuteronomy chapter 12. That also was for religious celebration. So now we're up to about 20% of giving. There was also the poor tithe that was described in Deuteronomy 14. And what they would do was every three years, they would take a special offering. And that special uh, tithe that was given was intended to be for the poor that were among them. So however you look at it, uh, the Israelites under the law gave somewhere between a quarter and a third of what God blessed them with every single year. And I don't believe that uh, that's all that God intended because there were also free will offerings and the free will offerings were above and beyond. They were to take and give what they had to the Lord as a, an additional free will offering. But I will say that biblically, I do not think that we are under the law when it comes to giving. Let me explain what I mean by that. When Jesus fulfilled the law, the New Testament nowhere commands that Christians submit to a law of tithing. Jesus did, in fact, reference tithing as though that were the minimum thing that should be done, but it doesn't command that we tithe, nor do we find a specific percentage that we're supposed to give in the New Testament. What we do find is the idea of everyone giving and keeping with what they have in 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 2. But I do believe that the Old Testament tithe is a guideline, an understanding for us to help us understand what grace giving is all about. And it kind of lays the foundation for our giving to help us understand how generous we should be. Now, let me just state the obvious fact here, but I, I try to state this periodically. Uh, the blessing that your family receives or you receive individually every week when you come into the life of this church, it is supported by the free will giving of God's people. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to do what we do. And I'm always a little bit perplexed 
when people never think personally that it's their responsibility to invest in the work. It's just their responsibility or their privilege to partake of the work. And I would say to you that if you're going to partake of the work, you should also participate in the work. And also the, the many ministries that we're engaged with here in our community and the different local partnerships that we have, the missionaries who are on the field, who are serving God faithfully, all of these things are depending on God's people being faithful with the resources that God has entrusted to them. We as the church are to be givers as God has given to us. Now, if you look at giving statistics, however, according to giving statistics, there's only between about 10 and 25% of people in the average congregation who actually tithe. So that's somewhere between one in three people or one in three families that actually come anywhere close to a tithe. In fact, you go a little bit further with that, a religious giving has dropped precipitously since about 1990, so the past couple of decades, the past three decades, we've seen a decline in it, and the average churchgoer in an evangelical congregation in the United States only gives about 2.5% of their income to the church. Now, I'm not real good at math, but if we're using the tithe just kind of as a basic guardrail here to understand what our starting point is here, that means that the average person who goes to church and calls themselves a follower of Christ is participating at about a fourth of even that, much less being close to reaching any level of generosity or personal sacrifice. And it's always interesting as well, anytime that I have uh, preached on stewardship or giving or money through the years, you know the people that complain about it? The people that don't give. It's the people that don't give. It's the people that don't see their responsibility. They're the ones that, well, I have preachers talking about money now. It's making me nervous. Well, it's biblical, so I just want to lay it out here today, but I want us to go beyond the obvious. You say, well, certainly it, people who have more are able to give more. Did you know that of, of households that earn more than $75,000 in the U.S., according to giving statistics, and, and you know with all the obligations we have, $75,000 as a household is not exactly making bank. But of those who are making more than $75,000, did you know that only 1% of those households tithe? Only 1%. So the issue is not how much we have. The issue is what do we do with what we have. So I want to suggest some principles here in moving forward that will help us put this in a framework to be able to apply it to our lives. And the first is this, giving is a matter of the heart. Giving is a matter of the heart. That's what it says in verse 7. Each should do what he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly, not out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. Now, I've already referenced that these Macedonians, they were poor. I mean, they defined poor. The word that is used for poor is bathos, which means deep, it's the word from which we get our word bathysphere, which means a ship going down to the bottom of the sea and exploring the sea. He is saying the Macedonians were in deep poverty. Let's put it another way. These people were dirt poor. It wasn't though as though they had extra to give. They were dirt poor. In the severest of trial, crushed by life, under immense pressure because they were living for Christ, and yet they did the impossible. Their overflowing joy and extreme poverty welled up 
in a rich generosity. And furthermore, they urgently pleaded for the privilege of being able to share in the service of faith. I think it's similar to when Moses was collecting offering uh, and giving for the tabernacle. You remember that story in Exodus chapter 36? They passed the word. God had told them what they needed for the tabernacle. They passed the word of what each individual and family was supposed to do. And man, the people started coming. And when they started coming with what they had, they started giving generously. And it got to the point that they not only had what they needed, they had more than they needed. And Moses had to say, listen, y'all got to stop. We got enough. Now think about how opposite that is in the life of most New Testament congregations. I've been in church my entire life, and I've never heard the preacher stand up, whether it be in the regular giving or in a particular project, and have to say, listen, folks, you've been so sacrificial and generous. We got enough. Just stop. We're going to regroup and do something else later on, but we got enough. You just need to stop because you've been so generous. You see, these were people who gave as a matter of the heart. The Macedonians characterized that, and Paul is trying to stir up the Corinthians to do the same. So here's something the Lord has really impressed on me in recent years especially. I've been preaching about stewardship for a lot of years, but this is something the Lord has impressed on me, especially maybe in the last five years. And that is because giving is a matter of the heart. It should never be coerced or manipulated in any way at all. God's people should be taught the obedience and the faithfulness of stewardship and of entrusting their entire lives to the Lord and what they have. God's people should be presented with the need, and then we should trust that the Holy Spirit will work in the hearts of the people to provide what he wants to provide through the people who want to be a part of his work, and we'll keep moving forward. We should give because we want to give. We should give because God has put it in our hearts to give. And in a way, our giving reveals the purpose of our heart. In other words, if we say that we love God, oh yes, we're saved, we're followers of Jesus, but then our resources don't match up with it, it's one of the truest thermometers in life of where our spiritual temperature is. Your faithfulness or your lack thereof in your life of stewardship is one of the truest thermometers that you could possibly have that reflects where you are spiritually with the Lord. And we should joyfully participate in that. And where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. And God does not want our giving to be grudging or reluctant. He doesn't want it purely to be of necessity. That'd be a lot more like a tax. But do you think when God gives to us, or that when God gave the greatest gift of all in his only son, that he looked down upon his creation and gave it and gave him grudgingly? No. It says we want to bless our own children. We look at our children and we think, Lord, we want to do good by them. We want to bless them. That gives us joy to be able to do something that's a blessing for our children. And I think it gives God joy when he does something that is a blessing to his children. He's not doing it grudgingly. And God loves a cheerful giver. God wants you to give happily because that's how God himself gives. 
God the Lord, our Creator, takes special pleasure in, has a special joy in, receives a special delight when we delight in giving to Him. And true giving comes from a cheerful heart, but it also gives a cheerful heart. There's a beautiful example in the same chapter that I read from earlier when I was preparing for the Lord's Supper. Matthew chapter 26, it's also recorded in Luke chapter 7 of when Jesus had just gotten to Bethany. He was preparing himself for the cross. And there in his presence and in the presence of the disciples was a woman who was a notorious sinner. And she anoints the feet of Jesus with this expensive perfume. And essentially, it was in preparation for the anointing of what he was about to experience. But it was simply an act of grace and an act of giving to our Lord. And one of the disciples said, that, basically, that's ridiculous. We could have taken that and given it to the poor because it was so valuable. And Jesus said, the poor you have with you always, uh, but I'm not going to be with you always. And then Jesus said something in the commentary about that that I think is profoundly significant. He said, what this woman has done will be told and retold as a testimony throughout the world, wherever the gospel goes out, there's going to be a testimony of what she has done. And here we are, 2,000 years later, and we're given a testimony. Here as we proclaim the gospel, we're given a testimony of what this woman did from her heart. And we're reminded that giving is a matter of the heart. The second principle is this. Giving is a matter of sowing and reaping. In verse 6, he says, the point is this. The person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And the person who sows generously will also reap generously. There are many references in the Bible to this idea of sowing and reaping. Sometimes it's in terms of the sowing and the reaping of the gospel. Sometimes it's in terms of sowing and reaping of our spiritual actions that can bring either spiritual blessing or spiritual consequence. Here, it's in the context of our stewardship and our giving. And God uses the law of sowing and reaping to remind us the blessing that we receive when we sow generously. Now, let me just say here, this is a passage that has been hijacked by health and wealth, prosperity, gospel, teachers, and they have turned it toward their own selfish gain and made it something greedy that it's not at all. And because of that, sometimes we shrink back from it and we try to explain it away. Well, that's not really what God meant. Or, yeah, let's qualify this and let's make sure that we're all clear on what Jesus really meant when he said this and what Paul's talking about when he communicates this. And it's reminded us that the plain meaning of scripture is still the plain meaning and it has an application to us, but it teaches us that we must stay focused on where our treasure is because where our treasure is there, our heart will be also. And the point is, we're not laying up for ourselves treasures on this earth where moth and rust will destroy and where thieves will break in and steal. We are laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven. And when we give generously of what the Lord has entrusted to us, then he blesses us generously in return. And all of us already have more than we could ever deserve, which is nothing. We have so much more than that, what we could deserve, which is everything in Christ. And this principle of sowing and reaping is important as it relates to our giving. To have a harvest, you have to sow seed. What you harvest is going to determine, be determined by what you sow. 
And the amount of the harvest is going to determine on, uh, be determined by the amount of the seed that you have sown. Brian Wilkerson in his sermon, A Crop is a Crop, said this. He said, the law of the harvest is you reap what you sow. If you sow barley, you reap barley. You'd have to be pretty foolish to sow barley and expect wheat. Not only that, but the more you sow, the more you reap. If you sow 10 acres of barley in the springtime, you can expect 10 acres worth of barley at harvest time. But don't expect a harvest of 40 acres if you only sowed 10. It doesn't work that way. The more you scatter, the more you gather. Paul applies that simple principle to finances. The more you give, the more you gather. In the same way that a farmer who sows generously reaps generously, a person who gives generously is going to be blessed generously. Put another way, the more generously we give, the more we're blessed because God provides. Now let's think about this from two aspects here, and we're going to read on in just a second in 2 Corinthians 9. One is, this is specifically talking about our giving, our, our resources. And then we also are given the illustration in the scripture of sowing the seed of the word of God or sowing the gospel, uh, essentially, of Jesus Christ in all the world. And as a church, if we're going to be on mission and we're going to see people come to Christ, and we're going to see people go through these baptismal waters, or if we're going to be a part of God's mission around the world where people are coming to Christ and churches are forming and leaders are being trained, disciples are being made, and the work is being multiplied, we've got to sow the seed of the Word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ generously and abundantly. We cannot think that if we sow in small ways that we're going to see big results. If we want to see many people coming to faith in Christ, if we want to see the mission of God advanced in a significant way, then we've got to step out on faith and we have to sow generously with the truth in the gospel that has been so generously shared with us in Christ. And it takes resources to be able to do that. Now we'll pick up reading here. You'll notice in verse 8, he says, and God is able to make every grace overflow to you so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. And then he references Psalm 112 in verse 9. He distributed freely. He gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. God provides what we need, but he doesn't give us a good harvest so that we can waste it on ourselves. God has a higher purpose in making his grace overflow to you so that you may excel in every good work. That's why God saved you so that your works of righteousness would be a reflection of his glory so that your good works would bring glory to your father. And the idea of having all you need is a sufficiency in all things. Sufficiency is actually translated or can be translated as contentment. Same idea that Paul writes about in 1 Tim Timothy, that godliness with contentment is great gain. So God gives a special gift to the giving heart in that not only are you blessed by what you give, but you gain contentment. Do you know the people that are the most discontented in the world, that lack contentment in their lives, are the people that are greedy? The people that hold on to the blessings in a tight-fisted kind of a way? And they're constantly asking how little they can get by with giving or how little they can get by with participating in the mission of God or how little they can do and somehow feel good about themselves or, or be blessed. They're the people that lack contentment the most. But it's the people who serve Christ with open hands and understand the blessing of what they've been given who receive contentment in all things. 
And God intends for us to use whatever measure of wealth and blessing we have to bless others so that we might result in the abundance of good works. We don't want to be like the rich farmer in the scripture where the illustration is given of the abundance of his crops and rather than sharing the abundance of what he had been blessed with, he thought, well, I'll just build bigger barns. I'll just hoard up more for myself. And God said to him, you fool, tonight your soul will be required of you. Now let's bring this home just for a moment. If tonight your soul were required of you, if your life on this earth were over in an instant and you stepped out into eternity, what kind of testimony would your life leave behind of the kind of steward that you have been? Have you been in the center of God's will in your life? Have you been consistent in worshiping him and honoring him by loving God and loving people and making disciples? Have you been generous in whatever measure that God has entrusted to you? Or will you be embarrassed when you face the Lord because you did not take seriously his word to do what he said to do with what he entrusted to you? Spiritually, we can trust God to reward the giving heart both now and eternally. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 29 says, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake, my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and eternal life. See, the enemy wants us to think about what we've given up. And God says, don't think about what you've given up. Think about the treasure that you have gained in Christ. And that makes all the difference. You cannot outgive God. And then there's a third and final principle. Giving is a matter of thanksgiving. Giving is a matter of thanksgiving. There's several benefits mentioned here of the giving from the believers in the church. Practically speaking, their giving would meet needs of other believers, meet practical needs, right? Uh, their giving would cause thanksgiving to God so that when they gave and the other believers saw what they were doing and saw their sacrifice and saw their generosity, then they would give thanksgiving to God as well because of how good he had been. And their giving was evidence of God's work in them. So when we give, it's evidence that we believe what the Bible teaches. It's evidence that we believe that God is the greatest giver of all. It's evidence that we believe we have a responsibility and an accountability and will ultimately be rewarded accordingly. And their giving would also prompt the prayers of other believers. Someone said if stewardship is one side of the coin, gratitude and thanksgiving are on the other side. And a heart filled with gratitude is the best cure for selfishness and greed. Your giving is thanksgiving to a good God who has been so generous. And then I say this to you in closing, the words of Paul in closing chapter 9, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. This is the second time in these two chapters that Paul has brought us back to the main heart of the matter. He says that Christ, though he was rich, became poor for your sake, so that you might become rich in him in chapter 8. 
And now he says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Paul writes first about human gifts, but then he shifts back toward the gift of God sending his son Jesus to the earth for us. And he cannot even find words in the language to describe it. This is amazing. He uses the word indescribable here, and the word indescribable is not found in any other ancient writings up until the point Paul used the word indescribable. It was so indescribable, and it was such a great gift, Paul had to make up a word for it. He couldn't even fully say it in his language, and he's saying, this is the indescribable gift. And here's what he's saying. Jesus Christ is the greatest gift that has ever been given. And this gift is so great that words from a human perspective cannot fully communicate the weight of the gift that God has given to us. That the one who was rich in all of eternity was willing to become poor for us. And when we trust in him, through repentance and faith, we in turn become givers like him. God owns it all. You cannot enrich God. You cannot complete God. He's already complete. He's already sufficient. He owns it all. You are responsible for the life that he has blessed you with. You will be accountable and also rewarded accordingly for how he has blessed you. And there's one prayer that I have as it relates to stewardship and a generous life. And this will be my prayer for all of you and myself included. The Bible says it is required of a steward that he be found faithful. That he be found faithful. I pray that when we come to the end of our days, that God would be able to see the contribution of our lives in Christ and say, that's one of my children who's been faithful. They've been faithful. Even when it was hard, they were faithful. Even when they were discouraged, they were faithful. Even when they felt like quitting, they were faithful. Even when nobody else was going along the narrow road or it didn't seem like anybody else was going with them, they were faithful. You see, our Lord Jesus Christ is faithful. And when we keep our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith, it won't be by our strength and our power and our ability and our giftings that we'll be found faithful. It will be because we are in Him. And the one who has saved us is the one who will sustain us. And the one who sustains us is the one who will see us faithfully home. And we want our lives to be faithful contributions to his kingdom for his glory. Let's bow our heads together just for a moment. As we go to our time of prayer and commitment, We do so with a great deal of gratitude for all that God has done for us through His Son, Jesus. And I would encourage, first of all, those of you who are running the race well, you are the folks that are holding up the banner, you're faithfully giving, you're hanging in there in this marathon that we're running together. 
May God encourage your soul and bless you as you continue on the path that he's called you to. But I know enough to know in a, in a crowd this size this morning that there's some folks that if they had to be judgment day honest, they would say, my life is not where it needs to be, but I, I really know it needs to be because I know Christ. Well, he'll help you. God's the God of new beginnings. God is the God who takes us where we are, but he loves us too much to leave us there, and he takes us onward to where he wants us to be. What, what if today was a, was a new beginning in your life with God? In the years to come, he would use you in a way that is greater than anything you could have ever thought of or dreamed of. It could happen, but it's going to start with you and your heart saying to God, here I am, take me onward. Maybe there's somebody here who's never received the indescribable gift and you need to come in repentance and faith and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. We invite you to come and do so here in these moments and then we'll be here as the service is over as well to receive you. We'd love to pray with you and encourage you any way we can. God, thank you for your love for us as your children. We exalt the name of your son who though he was rich became poor for our sakes. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to be faithful. Thank you for the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ and this great church. May you raise up others like them and help us to be encouragement to one another along the way so that our lives will be lived from the heart with pure motivation for the glory of our great God. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.